for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Psalm 51 verse 3. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The scriptures that we heard from Jeremiah and from Hebrews are really bringing forth the same thing, the great comfort and consolation we can have when we come before God rightly, which is first and foremost in Jesus Christ, but also with the right disposition. It it strikes me when I hear the Hebrews, when when St. Paul is writing and he's constantly saying, you can approach with boldness the throne of grace. You would only say that to someone who was sort of wrongly timid, right? If someone was backing away from God, you'd say, no, no, no. You can actually come before the Father because of Jesus Christ, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Don't be afraid. Stand before him. Bear your soul before him. Don't be afraid. We stand now in our day and age not needing that encouragement because we already, generally, tend to presume in the other direction, right? Like, oh yeah, it's all forgiven, everything's fine, I'm good, I'll come before God. (laughs) That seems to be like the general attitude of our age. So we're not even in need, most of us, most of the time, in the the rich, profound encouragements of Hebrews and Jeremiah about, you know, having God forget your sins and these things, because we are already just sort of wishing everything away in forgetfulness. And that brings us to the topic that I really wish to speak on this morning, the idea of sincere repentance. The opposite of presumption, sincere repentance. Um, it's something that our prayer book puts forward as a category uh, in, in several ways. Right? Every time when I pronounce the absolution, right, I say God's promise forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent. If you ever come to morning prayer, we actually pray in the absolution that God would give us true repentance. Give us forgiveness and give us true repentance. The prayer book also speaks of hearty repentance, earnestly turning to the Lord. All different phrases are for the same thing. And the fact that there's that word there, sincere or true or or earnest, it it really implies that there is an insincere repentance, right? If there was only one kind, you wouldn't modify it, you wouldn't clarify. And indeed, when we look at uh, our own lives, but, but in particularly the scriptures, we do see insincere repentance is a thing. Um, I actually was reading a sermon from a preacher who died a long time ago and he pointed out to me that a lot of people say the phrase I have sinned in the scripture but the outcome of their saying that phrase I have sinned is very different according to the sincerity of that confession Um, so just a catalogue, just three King Saul in the Old Testament when God told him not to keep any of the the polluted sort of supplies uh, from the people he had conquered and he kept them, he's confronted by the prophet Samuel, and he says, I've sinned. And the prophet Samuel says, God has rejected you as king over Israel. And he loses his throne. Even worse, an example might be Judas, right? We forget in the Gospels that Judas actually says to the Sanhedrin, I've sinned. I've sinned. I shouldn't have done what I just did. But he also doesn't find forgiveness in the consolations of Jesus Christ, because his repentance was lacking something. He, right, he famously hung himself and was called by Jesus the son of perdition. So those are some examples of people who said the right words, but something was missing right, to receive the benefits prophesied by Jeremiah and written about 
by the Holy Spirit in the book of the Hebrews, to the Hebrews. And I think what's missing we actually see fully supplied in the person of King David, right? King David also sinned grievously, horribly, right? And when he's confronted with it by the prophet Nathaniel, he says the exact same phrase as Saul and Judas. I've sinned. But the prophet Nathaniel says to him, God has put away all of your sins. So what was like the missing component? What was different between the confession that David made, same words, and Judas or King Saul? Something was different. And I think that something is a sincerity of repentance. As the absolution says, all those who sincerely repent. So what I want to offer you this morning is sincere repentance is actually really necessary for the Christian. It's really important. And the reason it's important isn't because, like, well, if we just sort of do an inadequate job, like, well, then we don't know what's going to happen on Judgment Day, and, like, as if, if there's some sin unrepented of. This came up in catechism class. And since it came up in question, I really sought the Lord and prayed about it because I wanted to speak rightly today. Um, it is certainly the case that when we die and come before God, there will be many sins that we have even, not even thought to repent of or repented of very superficially and inadequately. And the mercy of Jesus Christ is bigger than our repentance, certainly. We're going to sing Rock of Ages at the end of our Eucharist today. And it says, even if I cried a million tears, my repentance is never sufficient. So it's not about sort of, this is some way where we need this to get what we, get, we need from God. His mercy, as I preached last week, right? It, hopefully you remember, it comes first. He forgives us first. Nevertheless, I think seeking to be more sincere in our repentance is really important for this reason. Unrepentance and very insincere repentance leaves sin just kind of lingering in our soul. And sin is like a disease. It has this hardening effect. Our hearts actually harden um, towards that sin and towards God. Right? I was thinking like, what's an analogy for this? And all I could think of, which is not a very good analogy, but you know how like anyone who's been a long time homemaker talks about having asbestos fingers because you touch hot things so much that you can't even feel the heat of the pan anymore? Um, that's a weak analogy. <laughs> but there's some connection there that the more we touch sin, the less we feel it. We actually, our consciences grow dull. It's the same, and, and our hearts actually, actually harden. And now, thanks be to God, he's given us Christians, his Holy Spirit, to constantly be calling us back to conscience. But nevertheless, if we persist in sin, and that means not repenting from sin, um, we will actually grow hard, and that hardness can grow. The problem of unrepentance and, and insincere repentance, it may not really lie in the very present moment. Like right now, my repentance is only partially sincere. I'm trying with God's help to make it more sincere. But the problem of sort of like sin taken lightly or just left alone in my own life is that sin has this sort of snowballing effect. And you may have seen this in phases in your own life. You may have seen it in the lives of those around you. That leaving sin unattended, unconfessed, it can kind of harden and become total hardness. That's what we see with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. This, he hardened his heart against God. And I've, I've actually seen this in a few of my friends' lives, regrettably, and I pray for them earnestly. What began with just treating sin lightly, turned into sort of not caring much about sin at all, turned into total unbelief. I have friends who actually once believed the gospel and now don't believe it, and I think the biggest piece of that puzzle was sin taken very lightly, not sincerely repented of. 
Unrepentance now can lead to unbelief in the future. And so what happens then is we can come to a place where we don't even care about sin or what it is an offense against God or about wanting forgiveness or mercy. When our heart hardens, you don't even want mercy anymore. And that's actually the really scary thing. That's why I'm preaching this sermon this morning, is because that's the real scary danger. Because if we do come before God when we die, and we're not even interested in receiving mercy, Jesus teaches us in his parables and in his clear teaching, in that case, the Lord will say, like the parable of the talents, oh, you, you're not interested in mercy? Then you won't be shown mercy. Right? I mean, it's, it's that simple. Yeah. I mean, it's, the gospel is strikingly simple. It's like if you aren't interested in these things, God won't actually give it to us. And that is... You know, the only right way, really, from which we can begin to understand the very strange and scary but true doctrine of hell in the Gospels is it is the place for those who aren't even interested in mercy, who have said to God, I'm not even interested. And God gives us what we want in that instance. And all the terrifying proclamations from Jesus are forewarnings. You know, the, the judge will say, Away from me, outer darkness for you, punishment eternally. It's for unrepentance. And I think one of the things that the gifts that the Holy Spirit in our lives brings us to to keep us far away from hardening our hearts fully is sincere repentance. We actually sort of of, um, guard against, we immunize ourselves to having our heart grow rock hard by taking sins more seriously and having more earnest repentance, more sincere repentance in the present. So that's why I'm preaching this. Not as sort of like fire and brimstone now, but good habits now, so we don't even have to talk about fire and brimstone at the end of our lives. So, um, in thinking about sincere repentance, you know, well, what does that look like? We actually have the pattern, like this is sort of a liturgical idea. We're given the form in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a truly repentant psalm. It's the psalm David wrote, after he had been called out for his sin. And interestingly, just to catch, right, after the prophet Nathan had already assured him that the mercy of God had forgiven his sin, he still goes and writes Psalm 51. If we pray Psalm 51 and mean it, that that is sincere repentance. But the truth is, is, let me tell you my experience. I read Psalm 51, and I'm like, yeah, I mean this a little. But do I really think that there's like that all of these words are really true? That like wash me and I'll be clean indeed. Like do I need it so badly that I'd repeat that verb like ten times like he does in the psalm? No, my repentance is still growing in sincerity. And I want to focus sort of zoom in on on one verse in particular for this morning, um, and it's that verse I began with. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I think the truth of this verse really cuts against a teaching that sort of is around in the church today, which actually I grew up with. I once believed, I once believed this, that once you've repented and you've said to God you're sorry and you've asked for his help to try again, you're actually never supposed to remember your sins again. That's what I was taught. Maybe some of you have heard, heard that same teaching. Is that somewhat familiar even? No, you never heard that. Well, I, I grew up hearing that. Um, I think it was spiritually dangerous. And I think it's not biblical. I think the psalmist says, my sin is ever before me. And not just in the Old Testament, while they were looking to Christ, it's the same thing in the New Testament. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, this breaks my heart every time I read it, he's he's lived 30 years as like the greatest Christian there ever was. Like, you know, like he's just one of the greatest saints, right? 
He's laboured in the Lord's vineyard as an apostle, receiving beatings and everything for 30 years. And he writes to Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. And why? In the context of the passage he names, because 32 years ago I persecuted the church. Before he was even a Christian, he didn't even know better the way we know better as Christians. And yet 32 years later he's still saying, I'm the worst sinner there is. Like that's a New Testament example of keeping your sin ever before you. I think one thing that sort of also moves me is to think about how the Lord used something natural, the crowing of a cockerel, to be the thing that showed Peter his sin, right? On the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied any association with Jesus. Terrible, scary thing to do, to deny association, right? And then the cock crows, and Peter realizes that he had done exactly what the Lord predicted, and he had denied him, and then the scripture says he wept bitterly. You know, that token of really sincere repentance. And one thing I thought about is, if you live in a place where cockerels roam free, as they do in a lot of developing countries, and certainly in Jesus' time, cocks crow every morning, right? A couple hours before sunrise, the cockerels start up. If you keep chickens, I'm sure this is a familiar experience. Um, Peter would have heard that same thing that tore him apart every morning of his life. And do you think he was like, oh no, I won't remember my sins. I bet he remembered his sins every day and I bet it humbled him. And he said, Lord, I I did sin and I I, I long for your mercy and I love you and please keep healing me and keep forgiving me. I'm certain his spirit was brought low by the crowing of the cock. Um, I think sort of when we sort of look at it, the reason the attempt to like forget sins is no good spiritually is because it treats sins as if they're just sort of numbers in a ledger of like an impersonal deity when in fact they are violations against a God who really loves us. It's actually a personal God that we're sinning against. Jesus, I mean, David, he sinned horribly against Bathsheba and Uriah, right? But in the psalm he says, against you only have I sinned. Which is a way of saying the, the, the deepest part of this offense, despite murder and adultery, was he, he sinned against God. So I think failing to recognize how much um, God is our personal God is what makes us treat sin sort of as if they were just accounts in a ledger. And I think this is true in any human example, right? Think about like your closest relationship, either a best friend or a spouse or a close friend for a long time. When you hurt that person and you realize it and you apologize, do you try and never remember that exchange again or try and remember it to do better? I mean, well, maybe you do one or the other, but I can tell you which one will lead to a better relationship, right? Is remembering. Like, I have sinned against Carrie, which I hate. And I actively try and remember that, sort of in the business of the day, remember, oh no, Lord, give me grace to not speak angrily. I don't want to do that ever again. That was really horrible to see the effect of my sin on someone I love, right? Um, and I would rather forget about it. I'm ashamed of like how I've spoken to Carrie before in the past. Like, I want to not forget that and remember it so that I don't do it again because I love her. And I think it's the same dynamic with God. That because we love him, I don't want to do that again, so I will remember the painful memory of my sins. That is not fun to think about, right? It's actually unfun to think about. But it is, I believe, what the scripture calls us to do. My sin is ever before me. I think um, 
I hope that I've sort of convinced you, if you did also hear a teaching that I heard about, sort of just forget your sins, I hope that I've convinced you that actually remembering them might be something the Lord could use in your life. I want to point out there's still a couple barriers in our way to really being able to say with David, I know my transgressions. And I just want to name two. Two barriers. I'm going to give two barriers and then four solutions so that there's more hope to overcome than despair. We should never despair. Um, I think the first is just an unreflective life. This is the intuition that even pagans figured out, right? Like Socrates, you know, no, you know, the unexamined life, not worth living and all that. I think my trouble is life can just be so busy and I fill my free time with just entertainment or things where I'm not even stopping to think about have I sinned today in the busyness of life? If we're not even stopping to think about it, we certainly are neglecting to repent at all, let alone sincerely, of sins in our life. And I think the other thing, again, is um, another barrier, is I think we chronically undervalue the gravity of our sins. And this is that asbestos fingers things again, right? Like, if you've burned your hands a lot, you don't feel the heat very much. The sins that I think are the most sort of trivial may, in fact, be the most sincere. I've just done them so much, I don't even feel how bad they are. So we shouldn't trust our own feelings off of, like, Hmm, which sins were really bad or really worth confessing, we actually need to imagine how does Almighty God see them? That's how we get an insight into sort of its real gravity. I've been to confession before to a priest and I've said, I've actually said these words, I'm not sure if this is a sin, but I've done these things. And the priest has said to me, that's the most serious thing you've confessed this morning. It's like, what? Like I didn't even know. You know, like we, we, we're, sin blinds ourselves to sin. So those are two barriers, um, and I think you know we can even sort of test ourselves with them this morning. Like, if you think, when you think about sort of when I say the phrase "your sins," is your heart humble and heavy like St. Peter's, or is it sort of just flippant and light? And if flippant and light, I think there's work to do. I think the Holy Spirit wants to bring you to more sincere repentance. I want to offer then a few tools of how we can sort of make our, prayer, our repentance more sincere. As with last week, if you, heard, if you really received the lesson from last week, it's a gift from God. The, the, the help from Him, His shining our light into our minds and our wills and our hearts to be able to confess rightly. So first, above everything else, we need to ask God, give me true repentance. Give me a heart that does grieve my sins rightly and see them rightly as you see them. That sort of is the, the, the beating heart of growing towards sincere repentance. Um, I've said before from this pulpit, but to pray with um, Bishop Andrews, an Anglican bishop of a long time ago, who used to pray, Lord, I do repent. Help my unrepentance. That's a prayer I pray regularly because I recognize I'm still kind of half-hearted about my repentance and I want to be full-hearted. I repent, help my unrepentance. And as part of that, you know, praying Psalm 51, if you are sort of looking for a psalm to pray, like I don't know which one to pray, pray Psalm 51 and then Psalm 23. They're like the two best psalms in the Psalter, as you can have a best one. They're my favorites of these. But I think they're so useful for Christian discipleship to, to, to know Psalm 51 well. And in that spirit, I pray that you come to hate sin hate your own sins, the way the Lord hates them, recognizing how much he loves you, really loves you, and hates your sins for how they offend him and hurt you, 
right, with a fatherly love and a fatherly hatred for sin. When, in order to sort of keep the right perspective on sin generally, we always have to keep our eyes fixed on God, fixed on the loving face of Jesus Christ. Because it's Him who's going to give us the gift of repentance and the consolations that we are forgiven, that we too easily assure ourselves, oh yes, yes, I'm forgiven, don't remember it. We don't have to assure ourselves. If we come to Him in faith, He will spiritually assure us Himself. We, will act, we won't have to convince ourselves. We'll actually know that we've received the mercy of God, spoken directly from Him. We must look at Jesus to know forgiveness and to know our sins rightly. And then secondary to all of this, so that's the primary, but, but connected, is then practicing the work of repentance. This is why we fast in Lent. It's not just some arbitrary, what's well, Lent, what should we do, let's fast. We set aside a time to say, okay, for these 40 days, I'll actually lean into taking sin more seriously. And part of that is being more repentant. And one of the practices, like when you're really grieving something, you're not that hungry. You don't want to eat that much. Same thing with sin. But we can kind of go, we can kind of reverse engineer it. Like, well, I want to take my sin seriously, so I'm not going to eat that much. I'm going to fast. I'm going to give up luxuries, not just in Lent, but all through the year. And I think uh, sort of the last tool, again, secondary to just looking at Jesus and taking these things to him in prayer, um, is to take self-examination a bit more practically and concretely too. That maybe on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning to just take 10 minutes, 10 minutes, to think back on the week before you come to communion. Say, I'm about to confess my sins corporately in the words of the confession. Do I have anything in mind? Is there anything, Lord, in this week that you want me to repent of? And in his mercy, the Lord kind of shows us, he kind of pulls off one curtain at a time. He's like, oh yeah, you did that thing. I said, oh, I did, Lord, I'm sorry. And as we grow, step by step, he leads us into deeper knowledge of ourselves, which brings deeper repentance. I'm examining ourselves before our corporate confessions. And lastly, as a sort of final tool, <laughs> but I want to give lots of tools because um, as I learned from Judy the other day, if you don't take a full course of antibiotics, the medicine doesn't, the, the illness doesn't get kicked. So the Lord's given us lots of tools in his scriptures and in his church to fight these things. The last is, um, as part of self-examination, um, maybe preparing to make a confession to a priest. And I'm not trying to drum up business for myself. There's other priests in town I could recommend you to. It doesn't have to be to me. But for, to a priest, because to say it out loud, the specific sins concretely, is very painful and gross. And you realize, wow, I really am a sinner. It's hard to actually say them out loud and not cry, because it's like, why did I do that? Um, confession, that's why the church has always made confession available. In this church, I'll be making it available on Good Friday. I'll just be sitting here almost the whole morning for anyone who wants to come and practice confessing, practice working at sincere repentance through confession. If you're interested in that, um, I've printed up some self-examination questions that are in a little bullet booklet on that back table. If you're, if you're hearing these words, you're like, yeah, I, I want to dig into this. I encourage you to take that booklet, open it up and pray, Lord, show me my own soul and read the questions and see. I would say they're for adults, that, that examination, uh, not for kids. They're for adults. Um, those are the various tools that the Lord, I think, uh, has given us as he speaks through his uh, servant Paul in Hebrews, first and foremost, looking at Jesus and seeing everything through that light, and then practical tools through his church, like confession and examination and things. So I just want to implore you, this is our, sort of our last, I mean, we have Palm Sunday, but in some ways, before the whole sort of Holy Week kicks off, this is the last Sunday of Lent, and so I just didn't want to miss the opportunity to 
implore you as a sinful man to his friends. You become a friend. Um, let's, let's, lean, let's make, seek God to make our repentance more sincere. Because I think it's sort of one of the most life-giving patterns of prayer that we're about at this church. Uh, I, and it's the thing which allows us to really come into the experience and the knowledge of the saving goodness of Jesus Christ. So I actually pray all the time for us, Lord, make me and make this all of the Good Shepherd more sincere in our repentance. Pray that all the time. Because I want the Lord to take us in that way. Because I think the church has shifted away from it and the Lord is calling us back. Um, unless you think sort of maybe these are just sort of you know, old Anglican things or something. Um, do you know what Luther's first thesis was in his 95 thesis, theses? Does anyone know that? What the foot number one was? Number one, it's famous, right, we all know, like 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door of Luther, right? Number one, word for word, the life of a Christian is to be a life of continual repentance. That's like how the Protestant movement was born, against the mechanistic vision of the Middle Ages, which was false and in error. Instead, continual repentance. So I actually want to end this sermon in a way um, that I don't usually do. I actually want to pray Psalm 51 again. I invite you, if your knees are good, uh, to kneel. If your knees are not good, feel free to stay seated and just kneel in your heart. And I want to pray it again with, with more of our hearts to ask the Lord to fill our prayers with his spirit. And here's how we're going to pray. I'm going to pray the first half of the verse. And then together we'll all pray the second half of the verse. And we're going to pause between verses. We did this in Bible study a few months ago. And, we, and so we're going to, it'll take us a couple minutes to get through, but pausing to not rush through, to really seek to pray these words as our own to our Lord and Savior who loves us, Jesus Christ. So let's pray.